The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It is a joy to be back with you. I had to count this morning. This is the start of my 13th year shepherding this class. So... I sent around some handouts, and that's the second batch. I do have more up here, but it says the wrong passage on the top, so you'll have to scratch it out if you take these handouts. But if if you don't get one, okay, there's plenty. So they're coming around. The only thing, the only thing off is it says 48 instead of 53. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Isaiah. We are beginning our third year looking at this book, specifically at gospel high points in Isaiah. Isaiah is the first book in the Old Testament that actually uses the word gospel with respect to the day when the Messiah would come and the curse would be overcome and missions would be sparked on a global scale. So, We are looking at the key texts in the 66-chapter book, one of the biggies in our Bible, where it focuses on this coming one. And Isaiah's favorite title for him is not Messiah, and he didn't know his name Jesus. His favorite title is Servant. And so I've called our study here, celebrating the servant Savior, the gospel in Isaiah. And today, as a little bit of a catch-up, knowing that some people haven't been with us these two years, I thought I'd take a step back and do something I had um, only done in a cursory fashion, and that is take a walk through the way that Isaiah portrays the servant. And we see it start in chapter 40, and he uses this singular term servant 20 times, from chapter 40 to 53, which is where we ended last year. In May, we got to Isaiah 53, which is the, great, the, the greatest of the four servant songs focused on Jesus as substitute substitutionary sacrifice. And so that's the window. Chapters 40 to 53, we see Isaiah use the term servant in the singular 20 times. And I want us to get a glimpse of how he talks about him. To that end, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. Thank you for bringing Amanda and the pitchers home. Continue to fill them with your spirit and give them endurance. Give them grace. We pray that you'd grant grace to Isabel, Jasmine, and Violet, upholding them and and moving their hearts to treasure you, even as third culture kids. Guard them from the evil one and help their mommy and daddy guide and serve and love them well. I pray that your hand of blessing would be on this room this morning. There's people who who need to understand that you are a servant ready to work on behalf of needs. Some, I would imagine, are imprisoned in this room today. Some are weak, feeling broken in this room today. And you are one who enters in to deliver the captive and to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Who does not break a bruised reed and who does not blow out a faintly burning wick. So breathe in this place, O servant of God. Encourage our hearts as we see glimpses increasingly of your grace. As we celebrate the one the prophets anticipated, 
and the ones that, the one that we have seen. Through the exalted name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40. There's a major break in the book at this point, and we saw beginning last year that in Isaiah 40 we heard the very first gospel text. Right after we get Handel's tenor solo, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, we hear the intrusion of the voice of God. Get up on a high mountain, O herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The reigning God is the good news of Isaiah. And yet, it's not God in the abstract. God removed from space and time. We know that we're anticipating God with us. In the very one who has four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 41 is the first place we read of the singular servant. We're just going to walk through these texts. In Isaiah 41, what we get is that God has chosen His servant Israel. He had as a name. His name is Israel, that God is with him and will redeem him from punishment. This is what we read. You can either have your look in your Bible or at the screen. Isaiah 41... 8 through 10. But you, Israel, notice the name is Israel, and then God says, My servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God speaks to his servant. And what I want you to see is that, okay, the servant is called Jacob. The servant is called Israel. And yet here, you is in the singular. So God is is treating this Israel as a person. This servant is the offspring of Abraham. Back in Genesis 22, 17, we learn that the offspring, remember it said in chapter 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be reckoned. That is, though Isaac was the son of Abraham, the offspring is someone other than Isaac. It's through Isaac that the offspring would be reckoned. And that offspring will become as numerous as the stars in the sky and as great as the sand on the seashore. And then it said this, Abraham, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Using a third masculine singular pronoun. He'll possess the gate of his enemies and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You, O Israel, you, O Jacob, my servant, Offspring of Abraham, my friend. I called you, I I brought you from the ends of the earth. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you, I've not cast you off. So, right here we see something. We see that the servant is connected to the past. And that the servant is in dire straits such that the servant has reason to fear, and yet God says, don't fear. And then that the servant, it says, is in a situation where it might seem as though he's been cast off. Isaiah 42. What do we read now? That God's chosen servant enjoys God's presence will bring forth justice and law to the nations, will minister to the hurting and deliver the captives, will serve as a covenant mediator for the people and the nations. 
Look with me in Isaiah 42, verse 1. We're just going to walk systematically and successively through each servant text up to Isaiah 53. Behold my servant whom I uphold. God's the one talking about his servant. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. Now back in Isaiah chapter 11, we learned that God's spirit was going to be placed on the root of Jesse, who would rule with justice. A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of knowledge, a spirit of fear. Now, much later in the book, we learn that this servant is going to be upheld by God, is chosen by God, and will enjoy the very presence of God as if he is a movable temple. Wherever he goes, the Spirit of God will be upon him. He'll not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He'll not grow faint. That's the same word for faintly burning wick. He won't grow discouraged. That's the same word for bruised. Until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Then we read, I am the Lord. I have chosen you. God speaking directly to his servant. I've chosen you in righteousness. I will take you, there it is, the singular you, the servant. I'll take you by the hand and I will protect you. I will keep you. And then it says this, I will give you, my servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, what's striking is that consistently in Isaiah, when he's talking about the Jewish nation, he refers to people. When he's referring to a group beyond the Jewish nation, it's in the plural, peoples. Now, we just learned in the previous passage that the servant's name is Israel. And God declared, I won't cast you off, Israel. And yet now... We learn that this servant, who's chosen by God, just like he was back in Isaiah 41, will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice on the earth. And then, in verse 6, he'll be given as a covenant for the people. It, it seems likely to me that's the Jewish nation. To be given as a covenant between God and the people suggests that somehow in his person, this covenant will be operative. A relationship will exist between God and the people and between God and the nations, but it's going to happen in some way in and through this servant. So this is the first time that the servant who's called Israel There's a hint that, well, is it a people or is it a person? We continue. Turn with me to Isaiah 42, right to the end of the chapter. We're going to begin in verse 18. Notice here, God's servant is a people who bear a terminal spiritual disability. They're going to be deaf. They're going to be blind spiritually, resulting in their sinning against God and God's punishing them. And specifically, the way He will punish them, He's going to put them into enslavement. They've pursued another master, and they will be under the oversight of that master. Here's our text. Isaiah 42, 18. Hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see. Who's blind but my servant? The servant is blind. And yet in chapter earlier part of the chapter, we learned that the, the servant is the very one called by God, filled with the Spirit of God. How are we supposed to put these together? 
Verse 19, who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who's blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he doesn't observe. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious, but this people, see that? My servant is a people here. This people plundered and looted is, 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 this is a people plundered and looted. They're all, all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. That's what's happened to them. They've become plunder with none to rescue. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not Yahweh? against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So what did he do? He poured out upon them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So the servant is a people, and in the history of Israel... Isaiah, looking ahead through the sin in accordance with the predictions that Moses had made 800 years earlier, that Israel would get into the land, they would not listen to the covenant, and they would ultimately be exiled under the judgment of God. And Isaiah is looking ahead as if it had already happened. They are burned up. They are imprisoned. That is the servant of God. Bound up in sin, filled with rebellion. In this text, the servant is a people. No different, exactly the same. And it's all in the singular. Servant doesn't occur in the plural at all in Isaiah 40 to 53. So all we're doing is just tracking, tracking the singular uses. Let's, here it refers to people. Right, more a group. So let's go to the next text. Well, this, this is still part of this passage, this same judgment statement. Just a little bit further, down in Isaiah 43. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf, yet have ears. Remember Isaiah's mission. Back in Isaiah 6, when God called Isaiah, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. His mission was not a good one. What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to go out among the people and say, keep looking, but don't see. Keep listening, but don't hear. You remember when Jesus came? He told his disciples, I speak in parables so that what was told through Isaiah would be fulfilled. Keep listening, but don't hear. Keep looking, but don't see. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and turn and actually be healed. Their deafness, their blindness, was not simply worthy of judgment, it was judgment. And God was punishing the people, His servant. God says, servant, you're my witnesses. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I am Yahweh. Besides me, there is no Savior. So again, we've got a little hint, just a little one. They're deaf, they're rebellious. Sorry, He is deaf. He is rebellious, this servant. And yet, somehow, the servant is going to witness God as Savior. Go to Isaiah 44. First five verses. Here we see that God formed His servant and will help him pouring out His Spirit on His offspring. So the servant is going to have descendants. The Spirit on His offspring, blessing on His descendants, creating new life and allowing new identities. This is is really cool. 
Isaiah 44. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I've chosen, there, there it is again, the name of the servant is Israel and Jacob. Thus says Yahweh who made you, that's singular, who formed you from the womb. Hear that. God formed His servant from the womb. We're going to hear that again shortly. Who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, my servant Jacob, Jeshurun, whom I've chosen. In the Greek translation, it simply renders Jeshurun as beloved. Beloved. For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. It's new creation. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring. So it's not only my servant who will have the Spirit. It's the servant's offspring who will be filled with the very Spirit of the living God. And I'll put blessing on your descendants. They'll spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Remember Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah enters in as a prophet, addressing the people of his day and declares them a garden that has not produced and therefore God will burn that garden. But we also saw in that very early two years ago message that God anticipates through this book that the garden will not stay burned, but that from a single shoot called a seed, A single seed will sprout new life. A new Eden will be erupted in the future. They shall spring up like grass, like willows from flowing streams. This one will say, this is the offspring, this is what the offspring of the servant will say, I am Yahweh's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, Yahweh's. And notice, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now that's really striking, because if the servant is a people, naturally the offspring of that people would already be named by the name of their forebearer. But this is suggesting that I don't automatically have the name Israel. But the offspring of the serpent, not the serpent, the offspring of the servant, there will be those who have said, I am the Lord's. And not only that, they will name themselves by the name of the servant. Israel. I'm an Israelite. As if it wasn't natural. Next text, Isaiah 44, 21. God's not forgotten His servant, Israel, but's committed, listen, both to blot out His transgressions and to rebuild Jerusalem through Cyrus. Now Cyrus is the king of Persia. Cyrus is the king who lives 160 to 200 years after Isaiah's prophecy. And he is the king of Persia, who is the one who gives freedom to the Israelite exiles, the Judean exiles, living way up in the north. He's the one who decrees they can go back to Jerusalem and build it. And Isaiah names him by name. 160 to 200 years before Cyrus is even on the scene. Let's see. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You're my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions. So the servant is a sinner. I've blotted out your transgressions, though. As if you were never a sinner. Like a cloud, they're gone. 
Your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. I am the Lord who confirms the word of his servant, who fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation. Foundation shall be laid. We pointed last year to the fact that Isaiah envisions a two stage restoration. And he names the different agents of each of the restorations. The first agent who will initiate the return to the physical land is right up there on the screen. His name's Cyrus. And it was necessary for Israel to get out of Babylon. And get back to Jerusalem, because that's where the promise had been made that the Messiah in Bethlehem would be born. They needed to have a reestablishment of the state back in that sphere. But it was very hard to get Babylon out of the people, even though they returned. And that's why it was necessary for another stage Not Cyrus, but one who Isaiah only calls the servant. To actually not simply restore to the land, that's what Cyrus did, but to bring reconciliation with God. That's stage two. The vision here is that I'll blot out your transgressions. I'm going to work on your behalf, oh my servant, and know this, one named Cyrus is going to rebuild Jerusalem. So we'd have to ask ourselves, how does the blotting out of the transgressions relate to the promise of pardon, promise of forgiveness? This is just a little bit further down, chapter 45, Cyrus just... The the mention of Cyrus just continues. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, servant, though you don't know me. So that's just crazy. The very servant of God doesn't know God. Right? That's what we read up here. So again, that statement... You do not know me suggests we're talking about a sinful servant, a rebellious servant that God has put in by, he's punished. And yet the promise of these servant texts is that on the other side of punishment, there's hope. And then we have chapter 42, which already mentioned what appears to be a servant who will bring justice, who will care for the weak who will free the prisoner and who will stand as a mediator of covenant relationship. God says, I form light and create darkness. I am the one who makes well-being and I'm the one who creates calamity. That's the kind of big God theology we celebrate at Bethlehem. Because the problems are so big in our world The hurts run so deep. We don't understand. we, we, We can't put it all together that God is related to that darkness. That God is related to that calamity. But this we can be sure of. He's the only one who can bring the well-being. And He's the only one who can light the light and cast the darkness away. And yet, this is not a dualism of an eternal power of evil or what really isn't evil, it would just have to be a one side, and then there's another side where God exists, and somehow they're in animosity each other. The reason I say this can't be evil and this can't be good is because if you believe that, then there's no ultimate standard upon which to weigh which is right and which is wrong. But the Bible from the very beginning declares things good, 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 which means there is an ultimate standard of weighing right and wrong. There's an ultimate source of all things. Our God forms light and creates darkness. And if we're going to experience well-being, it will be in a context of dependence and surrender to this kind of sovereignty. 
You don't know me, he says. But I'm working so that you will, O servant. God grieves over his servant Jacob's past rebellion, but he proclaims his redemption. Look with me at Isaiah 48, the next servant text. Isaiah 48, 17 through 20. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's what Boaz is called in the book of Ruth. The Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the water, the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand. Your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. That's getting at the fact that perfect obedience was required for the servant in order to enjoy the blessing of God. Oh, that you would have been like that. And yet, you are now in Babylon because of your own sin. But I say, go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant. So there's this purposeful, penetrating push in Isaiah, interweaving these servant texts of not only the recognition of a servant that is sinful and rebellious, a, a, a servant that is in, re, in punishment under God, but this persevering hope that is, is present in, God, in Isaiah's voice of a God who will save the servant. So these are the texts we've looked at thus far. And it starts out in 41 with God just declaring His willingness to redeem His servant from rebellion and punishment. Then we go over here, and we have God empowering His servant as a covenant mediator to both people and nations. Then we got the two texts over here that just emphasize the servant's rebellion and certain punishment. And then... We were thrust back and the second half of this statement came up. That the servant, God promises to bless. Such that the servant will have multiple offspring. There's no mention in that text of anything negative and that's why I put it over here. And then the final three texts all focus on the reality of the servant's rebellion, the servant's sinfulness, and yet the hope that God will bring them out of punishment, bring him out of punishment. Now, from Isaiah 40 to 48, we get these 13 instances of my servant. And there, there seems to be a mixture of positive portrayal and mostly negative portrayal, yet mixed with hope. But now in the final seven instances from Isaiah 49 all the way up to Isaiah 53, we're going to get seven more instances of the servant. And every one in light of Isaiah 49 is going to make explicit, I'm talking about my servant a person, not my servant a people. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. This is a very important text for understanding the gospel of Isaiah. <clears throat> the chosen servant person is rejected by, yet represents the servant people and has a mission to save a remnant from the nation and the world. I'm going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. Notice who's talking. The Lord called me from the womb. This is the first time the servant talks. 
And he declares, I was called by the living God from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. What's your name? Tell me. He gave me a ministry of speech, such that he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away, so that at the right time, I would be able to have my piercing message shoot into the hearts of people who were once deaf, they will now hear. He said to me, you are my servant. Notice, you are my servant, Israel. in whom I will be glorified. So again, we're looking at the servant. His name is Israel. But now jump, let your eye jump down to verse 5. The Lord says, that is, you know the Lord, the one who formed me from the womb. Now, what's his name? The one who was formed from the womb? Israel. What's his role? What's he tagged? The servant. So he's talking now. The Lord who formed me, the servant, who formed me, Israel, from the womb to be his servant. Verse 6. He says, that Lord, it's too light a thing that you would be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What's his name? Israel. And Israel's mission, according to verse 6, is to do what? Restore Israel. In Israel, the person is the very servant of God who's called upon to restore Israel the people who's also the very servant of God. And it's in this text that Isaiah does, he, he, he brings together why all this mixing in Isaiah 40 to 48. Are we talking about a person or are we talking about a people? And the answer is yes, that this person could so identify with the people, representing them completely, and somehow bring great deliverance to this people. Now look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, to one who is deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. God speaks to one who is abhorred by His own nation. He speaks to one who is the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who's chosen you. He's talking to his servant person. The servant person is Israel. He embodies Israel. He represents the nation. But as he said here, it's too little of a thing that I would just have you save the Jewish people. No, I want you to save some who are at the ends of the earth. In Hungary, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Minnesota. At the ends of the earth, that God would raise up a servant who would represent the many. And within this book, when we ask, who could this be? We're thrust back to the first half of the book where the servant title is not mentioned, but there is one who's talked about. Jason, the word Lord, does that always refer to the Father God, or how is the word Lord used in this passage? So, in, with Lord, in our ESVs, we've got two different uh, Hebrew words that stand behind that that Lord. If it's lowercase, it just means the sovereign one. But if it's cap, small caps like we have here, then we're talking about the very name Yahweh. 
And Yahweh, to me, seems to be consistently the Trinitarian God who can manifest himself in space and time through one of his persons. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father except the Son. But if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That suggests to me that when God shows up as a person in the Old Testament, like the angel of Yahweh, and people can see him and he looks like a person and you can talk to him, he can even eat with you, that we must not be seeing the Father, we're seeing a manifestation of the eternal Son of God who is the embodiment of Yahweh and represents him on earth. But in this instance, all it says is Yahweh, and Yahweh is speaking on behalf of his future divine-slash-human son. And when we see that distinction of this royal, kingly figure who will, by his own nature, serve the kings of the earth and be exalted over and above them, That's a role that the eternal Son of God did not have until His incarnation. But Isaiah is looking ahead, anticipating that day. So that's where we get the the distinction between Yahweh, Trinity, and the working of Yahweh on earth to establish His kingdom among men through His revealed Son. Here's Isaiah. To us, a child is born. That child in Isaiah 7.14 was called God with us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be fourfold, giving great hope to needy people. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over this kingdom to establish it and uphold it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will carry righteousness as the belt of his rulership. I think that one that we saw in the first part of Isaiah is the very one that now we're seeing as representative servant of God. Go to Isaiah 50, verse 4. The servant is a teacher. He's taught by Yahweh. He is not rebellious. And once again, this clarifies that the servant that we're talking about, the servant person, stands in contrast to the servant people who are by nature rebellious. He's not rebellious, but he is rejected by many. Yet he's declared to be righteous by God. Fearing and trusting God, which alone brings life, means we will obey his servant. Here's what we read. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me, again, the servant is talking in first person, autobiographical. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a sword, with a word, him who is weary. Morning by morning, this God awakens me. I have personal devotions. My ears hear as one who is taught. The nation is deaf, but this one listens. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace, but the Lord is the one who helps me. He is the one who vindicates me. Very literally, He is the one who declares me righteous. But the, So, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Notice that connection. If you are heeding the voice of Yahweh, it is not intention to obey the servant. Because He's so intimately connected to Yahweh Himself. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. This is the last mention of servant in the singular in the book of Isaiah. What do we learn? God's servant serves as Yahweh's arm of salvation 
and God will exalt him and give him the reward of many when he atones many nations through his substitutionary sacrifice. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Isaiah 52, 13. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, so he shall sprinkle many with atoning blood. He's just going to pour it out upon the many. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has, listen, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before the Lord like a young plant. He was despised and rejected of men. The very arm of the Lord is the one who's rejected by men. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up and was rejected by men. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we were healed. The very servant takes on, according to Isaiah, the guilt of the many. And the many is not limited to those who are Jews. He sprinkles many nations. This is how, in, how, how he identifies with this group, the servant people, and beyond. Out of the... So what we learn here is the will of the Lord was to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. So he'll die as a guilt offering. And yet, on the other side of that, there is joy. There is resurrection. By his knowledge, the righteous one, My servant will make many to be accounted righteous. Our sins put on him. His righteousness counted for us. Twenty times servant is used in Isaiah 40 to 53. Thirteen times with mixed reference. And then seven times at the end, all of them apparently focusing not on servant the people, but the servant person. But what Isaiah does, and this is where we're about to go. Up to this point in the book, the focus has so much been on the role of the servant. And now, everything changes. The servant never shows up again in the singular. It shows up 11 more times from Isaiah 54 to 66. Eleven more times, but only in the plural. So, for example, in Isaiah 54, which is where we're going to go next week, Lord willing, the very last line of Isaiah 54, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The rest of the book is going to focus on the age of the servants. There were no servants prior to Isaiah 53. Something happens in Isaiah 53 that gives rise to servants. The servant is sacrificed and he has offspring. And those offspring are now called the servants of the living God. The new covenant is going to be celebrated, the very age in which we're living in, not simply focusing on the person and work of Christ in his incarnation, but now focusing on the person and work of Christ by his spirit through his church. So what happens in Isaiah 53 that creates servants of Yahweh from among Jew and Gentile? It's going to be explicit that foreigners become the servants of the living God. Look at how Paul talks. We're ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. God making his appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with God, then we appeal to you. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
Then he quotes Isaiah 49, 8. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you, God said. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God. Don't blow that off. He's just quoted Isaiah 49 servant text. He's drawing on the reality that he is one of the servants that was predicted by Isaiah growing out of the ministry of the singular servant. Similarly, in Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. That's Isaiah language through and through. This is not just, I'm a servant of God. No, this is fulfillment. And we get to celebrate it for the rest of the the year. To look at this concept of servants being birthed from the main servant and gain clarity to our role from Isaiah's perspective. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can celebrate the servant Savior and that that servant has given rise to servants. I pray that you would meet us in the weeks and months to come. Help us be grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Let us celebrate all that He has purchased for us, all the power and all the promises, and may we rest giving, placing our faith in the future grace that you have given to us through Jesus. Meet us in these months to come. Heal marriages in these months to come. Restore relationship between parent and child in the months to come. Awaken people who are lazy or bitter or lustful and move them out of their sin into new covenant grace purchased for them at the cross. For the glory of Jesus and for the expansion and fame of His name among the nations, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.